0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. have to acknowledge that there throughout history have been many blemishes on the church. The church has many scars that mar that, that, that paint Christ's wrath. Some of these, these scars and blemishes are, are usually points of emphasis from those who are skeptics of those who reject the organized church and i get it it's very understandable i mean the church has done many beautiful and wonderful things the god has 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 changed society in a positive way there are, so many beautiful things, gospel things, that the church has done. But there's also a sad history of corruption of power. Mistreatment of, of indigenous peoples. Misappropriation of fun. <laughs> the purchasing of bad music stands. Um, <laughs> Yeah, misappropriation of fines. even more recently and poignantly, for many of our brothers and sisters in the American church, corruption of of innocence, and then a cover-up of that corruption. I mean, the list list could go on. But there's one blemish that I think... it's interesting to me that when you look at the church fathers, and in the early church, they were kind of obsessed with it. Not, I guess obsessed is maybe too strong of a word, but it was something they were deeply concerned about and focused on. It's something that has haunted the church throughout, throughout her existence. It's, it's the use of wealth and power and influence to acquire greater influence, power, and wealth. Through Christ Church. I mean, you can look to, to countless number of examples, but the one that, that kind of sticks out to me is, is a prominent example of of Pope Benedict the Ninth. Pope Benedict the Ninth was Pope between ten thirty-two and ten forty-eight. What's interesting about Pope Benedict the Ninth was that he served terms as Pope. Now, if you know anything about the role of Pope within the Roman structure is usually Pope is a office for life. You have some exceptions. Interestingly, there was a recent Pope that also took the title Benedict that retired, which was quite strange. The Pope Benedict IX A very interesting track as Pope. He first became Pope somewhere between the age of 11 and 20. Uh, Scholars debated and are unsure, but most scholars settle on on that age range. He, He first became Pope and got that position because of the power and influence of his father, who was a count, a man of nobility. He was first removed from the papacy by another one who had, had legitimate reasons to have claim to the position of Pope. But Benedict IX was helped out by Daddy, who also, in his wealth, had a large family militia. And so Daddy's militia helped Pope ben- Benedict IX regained the office of Pope. And so he had a second stint as Pope. It was was short-lived because Pope Benedict eventually decided that he was going to sell the office of Pope to another man. Um, The reason why Benedict wanted to sell the office to another man was Benedict fell in love and wanted to get married and I don't know the exact going rate but Pope probably brings in some good cash (laughs) and so he sold the office um, and then took it back again because Pope Benedict was very good at losing and regaining the papacy, but apparently was not that great at gaining the affection of another woman, and the romance fell apart, so he decided to be pope again. Um, And so after his third stint as as pope, it it only lasted actually a couple of months. um, Because there were other leaders in the church, some, some faithful men who were sick of it all and started pushing, and lobbying, and moving to have Benedict IX officially removed forever as a pope. And what's interesting is that Pope Benedict had, had, had plenty of improprieties. Um, there were numerous things that would disqualify him as pope, disqualify him as, as an elder in the church, period. But, but what got him removed, was the accusation of what the early church called simony. It was a term that became associated with the use of buying or selling of positions of power or influence in the church. And interestingly, it was called simony because of our story today in Acts. So as we look at this account, I want to first just acknowledge that there are a lot of important and some kind of controversial aspects to this account. Influential in that this account has been used by different groups to to kind of almost shape their theological perspective of becoming a Christian and, and, and how the church functions with regard to conversion. But for today... I want to just focus on Simon. And in that, through his story, um, what we can see about the idea of belief, the focus on the miraculous, and then finally, the danger of simony in the church. So beginning with verses nine through 11, it says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had amazed them with this magic. Real quick backstories. We're moving on from the stoning of Stephen, and it says that after Stephen was stoned, that that did not... did not cause a, a, a kind of pause in persecution, but that, that the persecution even got greater and that that Saul began ravaging the church. And so, so the, most of the Christians scattered. And so we had the story of the one deacon, Stephen, and now we have the story of another deacon, Philip. It was also one of the first seven. And he fled to Samaria and began preaching the gospel and proclaiming Christ. And it said that with his preaching, like the Apostles, there was also great, miraculous signs. Healings, exorcisms, things like that. But Luke zeroes in on this dude named Simon. And he wants to make sure that he notes Simon's profession. He was a magician. Um, A little bit of clarification. Because uh, this has been misunderstood, I think, by, by some uh, throughout certain parts of the history of the church. Um, by calling him a magician doesn't mean that he was like Penn and Teller. Um, and so, like, it, it, the idea of, of magic and magician, whenever it's spoken in the New Testament, is not like a condemnation for anybody who goes to Vegas and is like, hey, I want to go see a show. Like, actually, it, in the time of the Romans, those people would be called charlatans. Um, It's a term that was called for those who did not have magical powers but would use tricks to try to make it appear like they did. Um, The Bible is really not that concerned about charlatans. Uh, It is concerned about magicians. Because see, in in first century Rome, in that culture, a, a magician was one who claimed that they had the ability to manipulate nature and the supernatural forces that were behind nature. They were also thought to be able to foretell future events. They were able to interpret dreams, and they were able to interpret the signs of the times to say what, what greater realities were happening. And they used prescribed rituals and prayers so that they could provide both curses and protection to individuals, to cities, to nations, to empower. Um, empires. Luke says that Simon Simon was a great magician. That he had great influence. Says that they would say about him that this man is the power of God that is called great. That's significant because we see from inscriptions that that term is the term that they would use for Zeus. They almost saw this man as a god. I don't know if Simon was, like, pen and teller on steroids and just really good at tricking them. Or Simon maybe was able to tap into spiritual and natural forces and actually accomplish some things. But regardless, everybody believed that this man had the power of God. And then in verse 12, the actual power of God comes in, and the people respond. It says, But when they believe they or the Samaritans believe Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Just as a note, when it's speaking about the Samaritans, it says that they believed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus were baptized, which you see throughout the New Testament was a mark of God's grace and initiation into Christ's church. Then Luke moves on quickly back to his focused figure. In verse 13 it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So I'm going to jump into a little bit of theology here, because there is a lot of debate, and I think the debate itself is actually beneficial for us. Because the question is, is in verse 13, was Simon converted? It says that he believed, It says that he was baptized. And depending upon the stream that you're within, the tendency to emphasize one or the other is there, but usually one of those two. Uh, uh, You know, a more um, kind of Roman Catholic disposition, it's the sacrament of baptism. Um, A more Protestant Reformed disposition, it's the profession of belief. Simon had both. But what's interesting to me is that as I did research and study on this passage, the vast majority, majority of the early church fathers just assumed that Simon had not actually become a Christian. And I, I do align with the early fathers because I think that the way Luke records this account infers that interpretation. I also want to qualify, is I believe that to be true, but I'm not going to rest my faith on the fact that that is true, but as we'll find, I don't think it actually matters that much. Um, One is, as you read through this, it would appear that Luke is clumping Simon with the rest, but he's actually subtly differentiating Simon from the rest. We see that the other Samaritans were said to have believed in the good news of the kingdom and the message, uh, uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Luke just says that Simon believed. And he never said, what? And it says that his faith rested in something that, that is kind of noted in the second part of 13. That he followed Philip, not because of the gospel, not because of the message of Christ, but because of the miracles that Philip were performing. It says that he was followed Philip, saw the miracles, and was amazed. The ex- exact same wording and language that Luke uses to describe the Samaritans before their conversion with regard to their following of Simon. And then you get to the rebuke in verse 21 and 23, where Peter, after they arrive, looked to Simon and said, You have neither part nor lot in this manner, for your heart is not right before God. And then in 23 he says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, as in bondage of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. That's not usually the language that is used concerning those who are in Christ. And so, so I do think that, that there is the language that is inferring that, that, that somehow Simon believed, Simon was baptized, there was something not right about Simon's faith. And this is why I think this matters. Like I said, regardless of, of what historically is actually happening here, I think as we kind of prod into this debate and question, it is important because it reveals what we think about the idea of conversion and saving faith. And interestingly, one's view of conversion and saving faith usually dictates the manner in which they interpret whether or not Simon was ever converted. I mean, the common thing today that is is probably most prominent that we find within the church is, is that you have the association of belief, which is a profession of certain doctrines to be true, to be synonymous with conversion and salvation. The problem is is that's not what's borne out in the New Testament. In John 8, you see when Jesus is addressing a group of Jews, a group of Jews that John notes in his account that the Jews who believed in Christ, he addresses them, preaches to them about the kingdom, and those Jews who John said believed in Christ finished after Jesus' message by picking up stones and trying to kill him. In James, we see him recount about pure intellectual belief and says, great, even demons believe and tremble. The reality is is that believing in something is always connected to having faith in something but it's not the same as having faith in somebody. I can believe that somebody is put into power. That doesn't mean that I put my faith in the power of that person who's there. It's a very different thing. And also the danger is is that we can believe in many aspects of the Christian faith and yet still not have our faith, our belief, centered upon the foundation and center of our faith. As I said, it, it talks about Simon. It says that I mean, he believed the miracles were God. He, he believed in the power. He believed in those different things. But it does not say, like the other Samaritans, that he believed in the good news, the gospel, of the kingdom. And I think that as, as kind of reflecting on this, I just want to use this as opportunity to then look at this idea of, of, of belief in true faith. And I think that it's tied to an idea that we often do not speak about, but is kind of evidenced in this story. is that true faith is always connected to this idea of what theologians call regeneration. If you pick up the the story, we see that Peter and John had heard news of what was going on in in uh, Samaria, and they went over to to inspect what had happened. Um, This is a common practice because they were uncertain whether or not these horrible Samarians should be accepted by God, and so the, the apostles came as emissaries of the church to maintain a level of Catholicity to go and confirm whether or not These people were in the faith, and so they laid hands on the Samaritans who were believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. But then Simon's response is a little bit different. In 18 and 19 it says, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is where they got the idea of simony and calling it simony. But what we see is this theme going on with Simon, where we see, with regard to his response to the faith, is a fixation on the power, a fixation on the miracles, a fixation that he had clearly before Philip ever showed up becoming a great and powerful magician. And see, the, the danger is, as he believed in the power, he believed in the miracles, and he was fixated upon the miracles and the miraculous, the show. And missed, I believe, what it was pointing towards. I'm going to steal, um, I'm going to steal a, a, a sermon example from a Reformed Baptist preacher, John Piper, just because it's really good. Um, and I wanted to actually, because most of you probably have never heard it and wanted to claim it for myself, but anyways, um, it wasn't mine, it was John's, just don't tell him. Um, but he he uses this example, and, 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 and I love it, but he says about how what's interesting with little infants, they usually have at some point this experience where you see something, like super cool or super cute and stuff like that, and you go and you point and you say, look! And, 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 and what at first do the little infants do? They look at your finger. Because <laughs> they don't understand what this symbolizes. They haven't picked up our gestures. that This means, don't look at my finger, look at what the finger is pointing towards. But at first they just hear look and they're like, oh sweet. And then they start doing this. Like, how do I do that? You know what I mean? See, that's a danger. It's a danger that we see with Simons. That danger that often can happen with the miraculous, but it can happen anywhere. It can happen with the show, it can happen with beautiful music. It can happen with profound preaching, it can happen with liturgy, it can happen with candles, it can happen in, in, in so many different ways where, where we have all these fingers pointing to Christ and his gospel, and we just get fixated on the finger. As we see Simon, it seems that's where his fixation was. Not where the finger was pointing. He was focused on the finger, and then began to really want the power that that finger had for himself. As I said, we look at Simon, and in reality, his desires and pursuits after his conversion, after believing and being baptized, was exactly the same as it was before. He went in power. Notoriety. He wanted influence, and his conversion was that he found possibly a better avenue to gain it than the ancient practices of the magician. I love this uh, an example that I've used often and, and before, but with regard to conversion, um, conversion ultimately within Scripture, I think the best one of the best ways to describe it is a Copernican rev- revolution of the soul. If you know the Copernican revolution, that was when, when the, from Copernicus, whenever they realized that the Earth was not the center of the universe that everything else revolved around. Or the, at the center of the galaxy. No, Sol- not the galaxy. Solar, solar, solar system. <laughs> <laughs> if I went through, like, every one of them, I'd eventually get to it. Yes. Well, they actually did think that it was the center of the universe. But nonetheless, um, it, and then you had the Copernican Revolution, where you began to realize that the sun was the center, and the earth just revolved around it. And so in many ways, that is the reality of what scripture depicts as conversion, as a belief in the good news of the kingdom of God, but also that deep recognition that he is king and the world does not revolve around me. I revolve around him. That my pursuits, my desires, my goals and my ambitions are laid aside. Because I'm actually not the center of the solar system. Christ is. So, as so we look at this passage, but we look at, at, at the themes within the New Testament of as a whole, we see that the profession of faith, or belief, Baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit are always tied together. Interestingly and frustratingly, they're not always following the same order and timeline. And a lot of theologies have been formed based upon one example or another as to how this all works. But they are always tied together. But but nonetheless, in in the New Testament, we see that that primarily the evidence. Of true faith or conversion is evidence of the Holy Spirit but not some ecstatic feeling not particular signs or gifts but what is called the work of regeneration a heart of stone turned to a heart of flesh the circumcision of the heart What is depicted of those who are not in Christ as being either antithetical or apathetic towards the reality of God's reign and rule become those who desire him to be Lord and King. Indifference becomes love and desire. Jesus speaking to the apostles on how they will know of those who are in him. He says, you will know them by their fruits. And none of the fruits of the spirits are, are of the spirit are depictions of certain moral reform or actions. They're the dispositions of the heart: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. A change of the internal, a change within the affections. But also one thing to note is nowhere in the New Testament does it say that that change is perfect and complete. At least in this life. But it's a change of desire. So I I, I always go back to Paul in in Romans 7. I I call it the famous doo-doo passage. Um, Because he's writing and he's speaking about this this tension between the work of the spirit and the law at work within our fallen flesh. And he says, I do what I do not want to do, but I do not do the very thing that I wish I could do. He says, he he desires the law of God. He desires obedience to God. But when that desire wells up, the flesh is right behind him. It leads him to say, what a wretched man am I who will deliver me from this. But then he concludes this this dialogue with, thanks be to God. Through our Lord. You see, what what Paul is depicting is that experience that most of us have who are in Christ. But what is the mark is that unlike what the scriptures describe of those who are not Christ, who do not desire the will of God, he now says, I do not do the very thing I desire, but the desires have changed. A lot of times our stories of conversion are stories of, I used to do bad things and now I do good things, you know? I used to sell drugs and steal stuff off of old ladies. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and we talk that up and it's like, now I don't, you know what I mean? Like, great, that's wonderful. A lot of religions can create moral reform. I met a lot of dudes whenever I was doing ministry in Pittsburgh who, while they were in prison through the nation of Islam, reformed their morality way better than a lot of other dudes I know who became Christians. You see, the difference is that with Christianity is that you... It's not just changing what you do as a new means to find whatever it is what you want, but it changes what we want because even though we can't do what we want, all that we really want is to be conformed to Christ, to know him more. For our God to be Lord and King. That's why I love the the example used frequently too is if you have, say, a guy who is a a well-known womanizer. Getting as, as many girls as he possibly can. We kind of find out why it's not just because he's like obsessed with, with sex, it's because it makes him a man. Like everybody else looks up to him, makes him feel superior. And then he encounters a Bible study and sees people's enamorment with that. Bible teacher. And so then gets really into the scriptures, gets really in the Bible, studying theology and everything else, so that then he can argue and debate and show his superiority because of all the theology he knows. So that everybody can see him of what a great scholar he is. And then, never change. He's found a new avenue for the same old pursuit. I think that's what we see with Simon. He believed and he was baptized. But something still wasn't right. And we're kind of left uncertain with what happens to Simon. I mean, there's tons of later legends from the church fathers, but if you read into it, it's because they're definitely, probably made up, and also, for some reason, they really hate Simon. So we really don't know what happened to him. Verse 24, though, leaves it a little bit unclear. He cries out to to Peter, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So then what do we, we get out of this? This cautionary account... Simon the Magician, this little figure that has played a massive role in the dialogues of the church, especially for its first few centuries. First is, with regard to miracles, I think there's two dangers. One is that whenever we get consumed and focus on the power or show, instead of what it points to. We're looking at the finger instead of what the finger is directing us towards. And that can be, Quite dangerous and destructive. And throughout the history of the church has led many down some very, very dangerous paths. But here's the thing: it's not just being obsessed with miracles. Be obsessed with liturgy. It can be that. Every Sunday, analyzing the heck out of the sermon and either saying, oh, that was wonderful, he had some good jokes. Or, you know what, it wasn't that good and it was kind of boring. Or whatever it might be, but, or having your favorite preacher, but being consumed with the work of preaching instead of realizing that preaching is just a finger. Instead of being directed or focus, Christ. Beautiful music. I mean, pretty much everything we do should be a finger pointing away from us and towards Jesus. And so everything that we do as a church can also potentially be a danger. it becomes the thing that we focus on and place our faith in. But there's also the danger, which the church has done at times, which is to avoid the miraculous because it could be misused. See with the Samaritans, they're obsessed with that type of stuff. And but God didn't see that there was a need to then be cautious. Instead, He still, through His Holy Spirit, worked healings. One of my favorite authors, an uh, old Welsh Reformed Congregationalist named Martin Lloyd Jones. If you know anything about Welsh Reformed Congregationalists, they're not really big on anything charismatic. He once wrote and said that one of the greatest attacks that the enemy can have on the church is to have some gross perversions be done in the name of the Holy Spirit so that then a majority of the church would be afraid of the Holy Spirit, who is actually our only power and is necessary for our salvation. So I do think. We need to pray for and celebrate the move of God's Spirit, but not focus on it. But instead where it's supposed to direct us. And secondly, belief. Um, belief can take many forms, The belief must be centered upon and focused upon and directed toward Christ and the gospel. It's great that you believe in God is true. Great that you might believe certain doctrines and claims. But ultimately, our belief needs to be centered on Christ. When you look at surveys today, most people believe in the power of prayer. They don't believe the core tenets of the gospel. So what it's centered on, but also that it's accompanied by true faith in God is a product of regeneration. And I'll give a caution because there is a level of, of, it is valuable to have a self-examination. Actually, Paul says so in, in 2 Corinthians 13 where he says to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. But what is important is that you don't remain there because faith is not trusting in the evidence that you find within yourself but instead looking outside of yourself and trusting the grace that is from outside. Because ultimately that's what faith is. It's trusting that God is who he says he is, will do what he claims he will do, and that his grace is sufficient and complete. And just as a little note, I always say to people, scripture is very clear that those who are not in Christ could care less if they are in Christ. So usually those who are deeply concerned about whether or not they are Christ and are looking inside and everything else, um, all they need to realize is that if you weren't in Christ, if the Spirit was not at work within your heart, you wouldn't freaking care. (laughs) And so that concern itself is evidence of that Holy Spirit at work, that regeneration. And finally, the danger of simony, which goes far deeper than I think It's common use, which is the use of wealth or power to gain wealth and power, to sell off positions in the church. It's a desire to acquire the gifts of God for unregenerate and fallen ends. That could be buying the papacy. So hopefully from this sermon, if any of you guys did have aspiration to buy the papacy, you won't (laughs) now. But most of us are probably not going to be tempted into simony, you know? Like, that's not what we might be doing, but in some ways, yes. Where it is acquiring those those gifts of God that are given to the people to be able to have the position, to have the appearance of piety, to have those things, but not for the sake of being a finger that points beyond ourselves to Christ and his gospel, but instead so that through it we can acquire whatever our fallen desires and needs are. Notoriety in society, influence, positions, acceptance, recognition, whatever it might be. In reality, any of that is following after the heart of Simon, or could be called Simony, I think. But I want to finish not looking at Simon, the magician. But um, with the more famous Simon. Um, Simon the Rock. Peter. If you know from the gospel stories, Peter was with all the other apostles when they were angry and fighting with each other about who was going to get that right hand position when Jesus got his kingdom. How are they going to call Quiet. Peter was the one who denied Jesus, because the solar system still revolved around Peter at that point. And yet, it's profound how, when after Jesus's resurrection, when Jesus confronts Peter, and he confronts him with the simple and piercing question: Do you love me? such a profound question because everything else hangs on it. Not just simply, do you believe who I say I am, Peter? Do you believe the resurrection happened, Peter? Those are extremely important but Peter, do you love me? I think that that's the question that is constantly being posed towards all of us. regardless of how we might answer, our family members might answer, our neighbors might answer, we know what Jesus answer to us if we put that question on him. Lord, do you love me? And he would, without stretched hands, say yes as we see the piercing inside. The piercing is in his hands. That would be the answer that Jesus would give to Simon, regardless of what happened after verse 24. That would be the same answer that he would give to Pope Benedict IX, the same answer he gives to us. So what we are left with is like the Deacon Philip continually proclaim to each other and all around us Christ's love. That we might all be fingers pointing to his bloodied and pierced hands. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon all who will hear that gospel message so that we, along with many others, can look into those pierced, outstretched hands and say, yes, Lord. You know I love you. In the name of Father and Son, and always be Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy my God theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last.